The topic today is Dark Deeds of Antichrist. Who is the real Antichrist? But before I talk on this subject, I'm very pleased today to introduce my wife, Beverly. Once upon a time, there was a king who had a panic attack. King Balak was terrified that Israel was going to destroy his kingdom. What to do? He sends for a man called Balaam, a sometime part-time prophet, and his job is to put a curse on Israel. King Balak knows the way to a man like Balaam's heart. He sends his officials with a contract. Come and curse Israel and you will receive a big reward. At the word reward, Balaam's greed antenna immediately goes up. He invites the officials to stay the night to give him time to inquire of God about the contract. Big mistake. Balaam knows full well that God isn't going to allow him to curse Israel, but he foolishly thinks he can change God's mind. God tells him that night, probably in a dream, send the men packing, because what I have blessed, you cannot curse. So next morning, Balaam sends them home with the message, tell the king that God has refused to let me go with you. Instead of saying up front, I cannot do this thing because it is wrong, he blames God for being unable to sign the contract. Hence, leaving the door open for the officials to come back. He doesn't seem to know or didn't seem to know when we don't shut the door to temptation the first time, Satan usually comes back with a bigger enticement, which is exactly what happens in our story. King Balak sends a more impressive entourage to Balaam with an offer of a bigger reward. Balaam bids them stay the night while once again he tries to twist the arm of God. In verse 20 of Numbers 22, God gives permission to go this time for God often lets us do what we want while allowing us to reap the consequences. The next morning, Balaam doesn't need his alarm clock. He's up before the sun, saddles up the donkey, and he's quickly on his way. He can feel that gold and silver jingling in his pockets already. One of the scariest things about us humans is that sometimes we justify evil, even though in our hearts we know it's wrong. And this story is a classic example of that mystery, and it's probably why Balaam is mentioned several times in the New Testament. In verse 22, God tells us, the Bible tells us God is angry, and he sends an angel to play a part to protect Israel. Balaam can't see the angel, but the donkey can, and she instinctively knows that she should turn around and run home, and she tries to, but Balaam beats her back onto the road. She does it a second time, and once more he beats her. Where are the animal rights people when you need them? <laughs> On the third time, 
the donkey falls straight down. And in doing so, she probably saves Balaam's life. But greedy Balaam doesn't know this, and he beats the donkey again. And in verse 28, it says, God opens the donkey's mouth, and she speaks to Balaam. Why have you struck me these three times? Balaam answers the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I think we'd all agree that he probably was a fool, but how dare he blame the donkey? Then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he too sees the angel, and he falls flat on his face. Now, even though he gives an impression of repentance, his heart is still full of greed, and God knows this, because nothing is hid from him. Balaam goes and he meets with Balak, who entices him three times to curse Israel. And even though Balaam is willing, he cannot. And instead, he blesses them. Balak gives up in the end and sends Balaam home. Even though he could not curse them, tragically, in Revelation 2.14, the Bible tells us that Balaam does tell Balak how to destroy Israel by enticing them to commit idolatry and sexual immorality. And that is why in Numbers 31, where God tells Moses to go to war against the Midianites, the Israelites kill Balaam. Young people, a couple of lessons here. One, even though we need money to live, let's never allow it to control our lives. Remember Balaam. Number two, if a donkey ever speaks to you, listen. Of course, God doesn't usually use animals to speak to us, but rather he speaks to us through our parents, our pastor, and good friends. Listen to their wisdom. And number three, if we are ever tempted to think that we know better than God, let's remember Balaam. The topic today is great antichrist. Would you please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. This is the great chapter in the Bible that talks about the antichrist. May I remind our viewers today and uh, the members of the congregation here that the source of truth in this church is the Bible. It's not our feelings. It's not some inner voice. People come to me and they say, you know, God, talk to me. It's not the inner voice. It's the Word of God. Would you please hold your Bible up now? Keep it open to Daniel 7. Would you please say, this is my Bible. This is God's Word. God has a message for me today. This message will give me everlasting life. Make me a better person. I now open my heart to receive the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 7, let's go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, these are the declining years of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. and Visions passed through his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four 
great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. When God gave the prophecies, particularly Daniel and Revelation, he gave the prophecies in symbolic language. Winds in Bible prophecy are symbolic of political agitation and revolutions. We talk about, well, we even have a movie that's entitled The Winds of War. So the wind represents political agitation and revolutions. The waves and the water are symbolic of humanity swollen with pride. Tossed this way and that way. So the sea tossed into fury is symbolic of the peoples of the earth at a time of revolution, political instability. A beast, it's very plain in the scriptures, Daniel 7, verse 23. Are you glad that you're here in church? Did you have a Bible? Amen. Daniel 7, 23. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. Therefore, a beast is symbolic of a nation or a kingdom or a power. This is quite interesting because uh, we're going to see what God really thinks about the nations in the world today. Would you please read on a little bit with me to Daniel 7 now and verse 4. Daniel 7 verse 4. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. While the proud nations of the world may boast of their military might and their superior culture, God regards the nations as wild, ravenous beasts. Did you know that? Did you know that? It's the truth. God regards the nations of the world as wild, ravenous beasts. The first power that comes up is the power of the lion, the winged lion. I've been to the, the ancient city of Babylon on, on several occasions. And it is most apparent as you walked around the city of Babylon that the winged lion was their special symbol. You can see it on the walls of the old temples. Right in the very heart of the ancient city of Babylon, still there today, there is a, a great lion made out of uh, stone. That's unusual for Babylon. Made out of stone. Looks like granite. And it is trampling underfoot a man to represent how Babylon trampled underfoot the peoples of the earth. In the scriptures and in archaeology, the lion is the symbol of the kingdom of the Babylonians. So this book was written in Babylon. And when it starts with this great portrayal of the history of the world, it starts with the winged lion, and that is Babylon. Would you notice verse 5, Daniel 7, verse 5? And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three rivets in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Every historian knows that this power, the power that came after Babylon, was the power of Medo-Persia. The bear is one of the most rapacious of all creatures, and so was the dual monarchy of Medo-Persia. 
You notice he comes up on one side because media came up first and then it became a coalition government of the Medes and the Persians. This creature, this bear, has three ribs in its bloodied mouth that represent the kingdoms that withstood it, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Then if you come down to the next verse, verse 6, After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After Babylon came Medo-Persia. After Medo-Persia came the kingdom of Alexander the Great. This is the kingdom of Greece. Our winged leopard is exceedingly swift, and so were the armies of Alexander as he marched right across the then known world. Died as a young man because of his drunkenness, and as he was dying, his generals went past his, his bed and they asked the question, Alexander, who will have the kingdom? Char characteristically, Alexander in his dying breath said, the kingdom shall go to the strongest. And after a number of years, his kingdom was divided among his four warring generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Now, I've preached this to millions around the world. Whenever you talk to an audience that knows anything about history, they're right on track because this is simply history. It is interesting, too, that Alexander was used by God because he brought to the then known world the language of, of, of the Greeks. And uh, the Greek language back there was something like the English language today, almost our universal language. And so when Jesus came, when the apostles came to preach, they came when there was a united empire speaking and understanding the one great language of the Greeks. Now, after the kingdom of Greece, you come to the fourth beast. Would you please notice this? Verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Around the world, I've turned to audiences, whether it's been in Russia or the Ukraine or the Philippines or Australia, or New Zealand, or even when I preached in the city of Baghdad. And I've turned to audiences and I've asked them, what is represented by this beast? What do they say? Answer me. Say it louder. This is the empire of Rome, the iron monarchy of Rome. You notice, my friend, what God thought about the ancient Roman Empire. From the human perspective, the Roman Empire was a time of splendor and glory. The Romans took pride in being the superpower of the world. Nobody could stand against Rome. But God saw Rome as a monster, an unspeakable monster 
that devoured the whole earth, that conquered the Holy Land and the city of Jerusalem. And I would remind you, they were Roman nails that nailed the Christ to the cross. The Christians were thrown to the lines, not in the Colosseums as is shown in the movies, that's simply fictitious, but they were thrown to the lines in the Circus Maximus that had seating for hundreds of thousands of people. The Christians were fed to wild beasts because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice at this stage in my discourse two great truths. Earthly kingdoms are temporary because of their opposition to God and his people. And number two, which is a solemn truth, and I want the people of God to hear this today, God's people can expect nothing but ferocity from worldly powers. There'll be no rest this side of the judgment. And so the fourth beast is the great Roman Empire. And this great beast has, as you can see very plainly, ten horns. I wonder what are they? Verse 24 tells you. God tells us this. Verse 24. And this was written hundreds of years before it happened. This is the finger of God. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. The ten horns on the Roman beast are symbolic of the breakup of the Roman Empire into the kingdoms and the states of Europe. Roughly between the years 300 and 500 AD, the Roman Empire broke apart. Rome was not followed by another great world empire. But the Roman Empire broke up into the kingdoms and the states of Europe. Those ten horns on the dragon are representative of Europe. Why did Rome fall? I guess the Romans believed that they would last forever. Rome fell for these reasons. I want you to mark it well. Inner corruption, pride, arrogance, intolerance, perversion of every kind. It was said of one of the Caesars who lived in the days of Jesus, he was every man's woman and every woman's man. It sounds a little bit like what? It sounds a little bit like our own day. The Roman Empire was noted for its excess. Everything was bigger and better. They were great drunkards and great gluttons. And because of their drunkenness and their gluttony and their perversions, their sexual perversions, and because of their inhumanity to man, God said, it is enough. And the Roman Empire collapsed into the kingdoms and the states of Europe. Notice verse 8 of Daniel 7. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, another king, another kingdom, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man. 
and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This is the Antichrist. Now, it is as plain as day that the Antichrist arises where? No, from so far here. In Europe, the Antichrist is a European power. And the Antichrist rises on the ruins of the Roman Empire. And he starts in a small way. As a little king. But as time goes by, he becomes the king who will rule the world. And his greatest days are still to come. And when he comes up, he overthrows three European powers. And when he speaks, it is with great swelling words of blasphemy. And the Bible says, look at this horn, the eyes of a man, watching, watching, the eyes of great intelligence, but a man who is full of pride and arrogance. And we'll come back to him in a moment. Don't think we've finished with him. Now verse 9 and onwards. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. There is a judgment day and there are books of record. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Listen carefully. Daniel, the prophet, looks up into glory. And while the little horn, the Antichrist, is doing his greatest work at the very end of time. He looks up into heaven and a judgment takes place. There is a judgment that occurs in heaven before the end of time. Did you know? People say, I don't want to believe in the judgment. I'm sure you don't. What have you got to hide? And the Bible says... The books are open. There is a record 
of every life and everything we've ever done and every thought that has passed through the mind. Omar Kayam, one of my favorite writers, said, the moving finger writes and having writ moves on. Nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line. Nor all your tears wash out a word of it. We can hide the guilty secrets of our lives from family and friend and from government officials, but not from God. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on, nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line of it, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. There's only one thing, my friend, that will wash out the sad story of our lives, and that is the blood of Christ. Nothing else. And he is here in the vision. I want you to know there is nothing more certain than the triumph of the kingdom of the Son of Man. He is there in the judgment. Truth will not always be on the scaffold. Evil men may have their hour, but God will have his day. How amazing that in this passage written thousands of years ago, before the Messiah came, one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is there in the judgment. And the Bible tells us that after the judgment, the kingdom of God shall come. Nothing can stop the progress of the kingdom of God. Nothing, 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 nothing. Sometimes the things of this world are too strong for the, the spirit of man and we think to ourselves, everything's out of, out of control. The church is getting worse. Things are bad in the church. Things are dreadful in the government. Things are terrible in the world. I want you to know God is in charge. There is a judgment day. And the kingdom of God will certainly come. And this kingdom is called by theologians the pre-advent judgment because it commences while the Antichrist is still doing his work. Now, move on. The Antichrist. Verse 15 and onwards. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind dis disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts, the four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying, with his iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on his head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched... This horn was waging war against the saints and uh, defeating them. 
until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So here, my friend, is the great portrayal of the Antichrist. He comes up on the ruins of the Roman Empire. People say, can you be sure about these things? You can be more sure about these things than anything earthly because this is the word of God confirmed by history. Now let me tell you where I stand on some of these things. We live today in an age in the church of anti-intellectualism. Let us just go to church and have a good time. Let us feel good. Let us laugh and shout and cry out hallelujah. But don't give me too much of the word of God. That religion, my friend, is going to take millions to hell because it is not the religion of God. The religion of God proceeds from the word of God. And here we have a description of the Antichrist and we shall notice him. Let me give you the identification marks 21 and 22 of this great chapter that I preached around the world. Verse 23 and onwards, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. That is Rome. It'll be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. That is Europe. After them, after the rise of Europe, Another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. The identification marks as plain as plain can be. I've had the privilege of preaching this before millions of people. And I've never had a person after hearing this discourse come to me and say, it is not true. Some have come to me and they've said, we don't like you. We don't like what you're saying. But nobody has come and said, it is not true. Because it is the truth. Number one. Antichrist is European. Number two, Antichrist arises after the establishment of the kingdoms of Europe. That would be about 500 AD. Number three, the Bible says the little horn is, uh, can you think of the word? Different. He is different. I wonder why is he different? Don't take time to look up the text because I'm just moving ahead. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Bible tells me that the Antichrist sits in the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3 and 4 says that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man who changes the law of God, sits in the temple of God and proclaims that he is God. Antichrist is not in the world, Antichrist is in the church. That is why he is different. Antichrist is religion fallen from grace. Antichrist is 
cold, harsh, legalistic? Do I need to remind you that some of the greatest crimes against humanity have been committed by bigoted religionists? By bigoted religionists on the wrong track. Don't tell them they're on the wrong track because they're sure you are. Antichrist is religious. I say, God save us from a man-made graceless religion. Antichrist subdues three, three kings. That's point number four. There came a power in Europe that overthrew the Heruli, 493, the Vandals, 534, and the Ostrogoths in 538 A.D. The Bible says the Antichrist is blasphemous. He speaks great, swelling, blasphemous words against the Most High. There arose a system of religion on the foundation of the Roman Empire around 500 A.D., that overthrew the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, and uh, the representatives of that great superchurch said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. We have the power to bring God down from heaven and sacrifice him on our altar. We have the ability to forgive your sins. We can close to you the gates of paradise. We can open the gates of hell. Words of blasphemy. Let me read to you from one of my favorite authors, James Joyce an Irishman. May I remind you, it's good to have a little Irish in you, but not too much, because it'll get you into all sorts of trouble, as it has for me. <laughs> Listen to James Joyce, brought up in Catholic Ireland. A strange, strong note of pride reinforced the gravity of the priest's voice. It made Stephen's heart quicken in response to receive the call. Stephen, said the priest. To receive the call, Stephen, said the priest, is the greatest honor that Almighty can bestow upon a man. No king or emperor on this earth has the power of the priest of God. No king or emperor on this earth has the power of the priest of God. No angel or archangel in heaven, no saint, not even the Blessed Virgin herself, has the power of a priest of God. The power of the keys, the power to bind and to loose from sin, the power of exorcism, the power to cast out from the creatures of God the evil spirits that have power over us, the power, the authority to make the great God of heaven come down upon the altar and take the form of bread and wine. What an awful power, Stephen. And what an awful blasphemy. 
And there is only one power that fulfills the specifications of the prophecy. And that is the church that went to seed that fell from grace. Jesus founded his church. The pastors were servants, not prelates. The pastors were the servants of the people. The word pastor means a shepherd. They taught a gospel of Christ alone, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. The early church taught the commandments of God instead of the traditions of men. But as the years went by, the light of the gospel was extinguished and pastors became proud prelates. Tradition usurped the place of Holy Scripture and the state joined with the church and the church joined with the state. Now people in this country, religious people by the millions are trying to get Congress to pass religious laws. Church and state joined together constitute Antichrist. And the leader of that organization, the Supreme Pontiff, took the title of the Caesars. His title was Pontifex Maximus. Go to Rome, you'll see it everywhere in St. Peter's. He, and he claimed that his official utterances, ex cathedra, were infallible. I would remind you all, my Protestant friends, that none of us should be too self-righteous. I ask you the question, what would we have done? This is the power that wore out the saints of the Most High. The Bible says, I watched and the little horn was persecuting the people of God. Look at Daniel 7, 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. I've had the privilege of preaching this in all sorts of countries. When I preached this in Manila, I haven't told you this, I've been invited to go back to Manila. I have received official word. They're celebrating... Their centennial, 100 years of preaching the three angels' messages. And I was there in 1984, at the end of 1984. We had a tremendous campaign in the Filipino International Conference Center. They want me to go back next year. But when I was there, when I preached on that subject, that night the Marcus family was there. All the leaders of the church were there some of them in their robes. The place was filled and soldiers stood around the place with machine guns. I wouldn't like just to be an ordinary pastor. How boring it must be to sit behind a desk and to be an administrator. Goodness. I asked the people, do you want to hear the truth tonight? That's what I asked them. Would you raise your hands? Every hand went up. And as I started to preach this, there were thousands of people outside trying to get in. Manila television was there. We had to go out, I had to go out and restrain the crowd, tell them, wait, we'll do it again. 
And I wondered whether I'd get shot that night. I'm not joking. I wondered whether I'd be shot that night. I tell you what God did as I preached that night. The Spirit of God came into that place. When I was through, every person, those in their robes stood up and they gave me a standing ovation. That's the power of God. That's the power of God to open blind eyes. In that place, we baptized 2,200 people, including a bunch of Roman Catholic priests. Because we need to preach the truth, because God has got his people in every church. God has got millions in the Roman Catholic Church, the saints of God. Think of Mother Teresa. We're not here today talking about people, but we're talking about a system of deception. Not talking about people. We should never criticize people and their faith. A lot of those people are far better Christians than you and I will ever be if we live to be as old as Methuselah. But we're talking about a system of deception that deceived the world. And that is deceiving the world today. Deceiving a lot of people who ought to have more knowledge and a lot more sense. I've been told, I've been threatened, don't you ever preach that again. Well, I want to say to those people who threaten me, I will keep on preaching this while God gives me strength and grace by His grace. Goodness me. It's one thing I don't like. I don't like cowards, folks. This is no time for cowards. I want to read to you from the great scholar, Dr. Grattan Ganes. Goodness, the name is almost good enough. Just give you bumps. Grattan Ganesh. It's a long statement. I'm going to read it slow. This is written a long time ago. Even the Romanists themselves shame you in their clear-sighted comprehension of the issues of this question. Cardinal Matt, now most people today are so ignorant of Scripture that this is not even an issue with them. Don't be ignorant. Cardinal Manning says, one of the princes of the Catholic Church, what a great church she is, Cardinal Manning says the Catholic Church is either the masterpiece of Satan or the kingdom of the Son of God. Cardinal Newman says the sacerdotal, that's a priestly system, is historically the essence of the Church of Rome. If not divinely appointed, it is doctrinally the essence of Antichrist. In both these statements, the issue is clear and it is the same. Rome herself admits, openly admits, that if she is not the very kingdom of Christ, she is that of Antichrist. Rome declares she is one or the other. She herself propounds and urges this solemn alternative. You shrink from it, do you? I accept it. Conscience constrains me. Listen to this statement. History compels me. The past, the awful past, rises before me. I see the great apostasy. I see the desolation of Christendom. I see the smoking ruins. I see the reign of monsters. I see those vice gods, that Gregory VII, that Innocent III, that Boniface VIII, that Alexander VI, that Gregory XIII, that Pius IX. I see their long succession. I hear their insufferable blasphemies. I see their abominable lives. 
I see them worshipped by blinded generations, bestowing hollow, hollow benedictions, bartering lying indulgences, creating a paganized Christianity. I see their literary slaves, their slave and priests, their celibate confessors. I see the infamous confessional, the ruined women, the murdered innocents. I hear the lying absolutions, the dying groans. I hear the cries of the victims. I hear the anathemas, the curses, the thunders of the interdicts. I see the racks, the dungeons, the stakes. I see that inhuman inquisition, those fires of Smithfield, those butcheries of St. Bartholomew, that Spanish armada, those unspeakable dragonades, that endless train of wars, that dreadful multitude of massacres. I see it all. And in, in the name of the rune, it is wrought in the church and in the world. In the name of the truth, it has denied. The temple, it has defiled. The God, it has blasphemed. The souls, it has destroyed. In the names of the millions, it has deluded. The millions, it has slaughtered. The millions, it has damned. With holy confessors, with noble reformers, with innumerable martyrs, and with the saints of ages, I denounce it as the masterpiece of Satan, as the body and the soul and the essence of Antichrist. Dr. Grattan Ganes, he was a preacher. Not a wimp, because he spoke the truth. Now, when I talk about persecution, let me say this too. The Protestants have also persecuted. Most churches have persecuted those with whom they've disagreed. You know why? Because we're made of the same sinful humanity. And the only thing that can save us from becoming a part of Antichrist is the grace of God. And let me say, wherever the spirit of intolerance exists and the spirit of persecution, whatever the church, there you have the spirit of Antichrist, whether it be Catholic or Protestant. The Bible says, Daniel 7, 25, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints. The church of the Dark Ages put to death, they say, 50 million people in the Dark Ages and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. The Antichrist, look at me, makes war against the Holy Scriptures, the Book of God, the people of God, the church of God, the law of God. And the Bible says the times. Now this is funny what I'm going to tell you. I know a little theology. All the theologians tell us we ought to keep the Ten Commandments. They all do. Billy Graham, everybody. And then we say, what about the Fourth Commandment? Oh, they say the commandments were nailed to the cross. You can't have it both ways. Let's be a little honest. Let's not lie. The commandments are eternal. There's only one commandment that talks about times. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six day you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. The Bible says the Antichrist, the church at Rome, would think himself able to change the Sabbath. There's not one text in the Bible that tells you to keep Sunday. That's why people aren't keeping it anymore. There's not one text in the Bible that says that Sunday is the Lord's day. There's not one text that says that Jesus changed the Sabbath. There's not one text that says that the early Christians kept the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection. We keep the resurrection every day. There's a Lord's day, Revelation 1.10, and the Lord's day is the Sabbath. Back in Australia some years ago, some people were coming to some of our meetings. Roman Catholics are the best people I know. Finest Christians. They think they're devout. They have some substance to them. This Catholic family came, heard these things, said, can't believe it, can't believe it. We said, go up and ask the man who married you. So the man went up the hill, because that's where they are, went up the top of the hill, the best real estate, because they're smart. And there the old Monsignor came out, and the man went in and said, Monsignor, you married us, you've been our pastor. I've just got a straight question, I want a straight answer. Just tell me the truth, you've always been honest with me. Did your church change the Sabbath? He told us the old priest leaned back in his swivel chair, stuck his thumbs in his waistcoat and cried out, of course we did. Who else would dare to? So let's have none of these lies saying the commandments are abolished and Jesus did away with the Sabbath. The church of Rome changed the day. I've got the catechisms. I've got the books. I've got the articles. Dr. Sam Bakayoki did his doctorate on this question at the Gregorian University. That's the Pope's own university in Rome and showed how the Roman Catholic Church changed the day. And the Pope said, Sam, good boy, you're right, and gave him a gold medal. Let's stop fooling ourselves on this. Then the Bible says this power would rule for a time, times and half a time, or three and a half years, or 1260 days. And in prophetic days, it's 1260 years. And that period goes from 538 until 1798. That's the Dark Ages. And 1798, General Berthier, one of the generals of Napoleon Bonaparte, marched down into Rome and took the Pope prisoner. Every word came to pass. I believe the Bible, my friend. It is the word of God and history proves it. Come now to verse 26 and onwards. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. But I think, my friend, as he thought it over, he got past the Antichrist. He saw the judgment and the kingdom of God. I want you to know, whatever happens, God wins.
the kingdom of God is going to come. We are living in the time when the little horn is doing his most successful work. He's deceiving the world. The next great event for you is the opening of the book to your name and the coming of the kingdom of God. We should say today, I want the one like the Son of Man to come stand with me in the judgment. Can you raise your hand and say that? I want the person like the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, to come stand with me in the judgment. Keep your hands up and bow your heads. Our Father, we're raising these hands as we're bowing our heads because we've seen today who the Antichrist is, so plain, so clear. And we want the person, one like the Son of Man, who goes to the Ancient of Days when the books are opened. We want him to come into our hearts today. We want him to wash away our sins. We want him to make us into his true disciples, not just talkers, not just religionists, We've had enough religion, Lord, at least the bad kind. We want the one like the Son of Man to come into our hearts and teach us to walk in all his ways. And today, our Father, we want to tell you that by the grace of God, we will not be deceived by the Antichrist because today we cast in our lot with the one like the Son of Man. Bless these precious people here today, Lord, with grace and faith and salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.